Hey there, and welcome to the pod for this Monday, January the 18th. Coming up, architects say that we need a total rethink when it comes to long-term care home design. Is that one of the keys in making them safer? Plus, the Red Cross deploys to an LTC home in Barrie, and two dozen warnings and some tickets issued to big box stores over the weekend for COVID safety violations. All of that coming up right now on the podcast. The province says that residents in long-term care remain a priority. The Ford government has committed to having all of those residents in so-called hot zones vaccinated by January 21st. But concerns obviously remain over the long term when it comes to long-term care. And joining us now is Irka DeChock. She's the founder of Design Farm and says it's time for a rethink when it comes to how we set up and how we design long-term care facilities. And Irka joins us here now on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Irka, good afternoon. Thanks so much for your time. Good afternoon, Jeff. How are you today? I'm okay, thank you. I read with real interest this morning this article in the Star that featured you. Your specialty is interior design. And first of all, you believe that the way that these homes are set up, long-term care homes, that's a big reason for the problems that we're seeing? It is a big reason. Um, You know, uh, the actual um, design is part of a reason. And then, you know, the staffing and operations is uh, also part of that big reason. Yeah, well, tell us a bit about how these homes generally are are set up and why they're such a concern. Is it just because there's too much shared living space? Yes, you know, um, and we've got policies in place that have been in place for uh, quite a long time. Uh, Back in the 90s, we were busy designing and looking after the D beds, and those are beds that were ward-style, so four people to a room, shared washrooms down the hallway, and uh, the the big rollout then was to let's improve this situation, and I think we did, uh, and that sort of ended in the 90s, but not a whole lot has been done since then. So, you know, there's there's different categories of the, uh, the homes, and uh, we really need to be looking at these new homes in, in a new way. Um, we're living in new times. And uh, it's not really just about infection prevention and control. It's about uh, the quality of life as well. And the fact is, is that people are living a very long time. And so we are ending up with a lot of people who are our most vulnerable population and they are in need of care. Without a doubt. And before we get to some of the uh, ideas for moving forward, uh, just before we go there, let me ask you, uh, the setup as it is right now and the way these homes were designed, a lot of them, you know, four beds uh, to a room. Was the thought uh, affordability for families and also that uh, there was some chance for interaction and socialization amongst the uh, residents? Well, um, we're, we we have fewer four-bed types of um, homes. You know, as I mentioned, 20 years ago, uh, we were trying to remedy that with uh, rebuilding the the so-called D-beds at the time. So currently, the model is uh, uh, a resident home area, so a wing, and we call it a resident home area, with usually 32 people, because that is the model that works operationally. And, um, you know, that is the funding that's provided. So of those 32 residents, many have a shared bedroom. So they share a bedroom and they share a washroom. And by washroom, I mean a toilet and a sink. One sink, one toilet. And then there might be a few private 
bedrooms that also um, have their own toilet and sink. So those 32 residents share all the other facilities, including one tub room, one shower room for 32 people. And obviously, in the light of the pandemic, that seems like a now sadly fatal error, right? I'm guessing that's where a lot of the transmission uh, might occur between uh, residences in these uh, shared facilities, these bathrooms. Yeah, yeah but uh, let's, let's face it. The pandemic has made canyons out of cracks that were always there. So, you know, 32 people sharing a shower uh, and, you know, we're talking about an aging population, a population that's incontinent, population that does have other issues. And so to be able to uh, mitigate some of the um, infection control, whether it's during this pandemic or during a season of influenza or another type of uh, virus like Norwalk, we need to rethink those kinds of uh, models. And yes, it, you know, a lot of the decisions have been made um, because they're cost-effective or, you know, they work with the staffing model. But in the end, uh, you know, is it really cost-effective? Yeah, absolutely. Big, big uh, question. So what is it we need to address? What do you think it is we need to uh, do differently uh, moving forward? I mean, obviously, this is uh, what we're talking about, not a quick fix and a, a quick solution. But I think we do also, uh, not only obviously do we need that in the pandemic, but we do need a total rethink and a generally better long-term plan when it comes to long-term care and how it's set up and how it's run. Well, I think that, you know, we really all need to work together on this. There's a lot of professionals um, that that are seasoned, I would say. You know, I mean, we've been working at uh, this type of uh, design work for 30 years, and, you know, we have a lot of colleagues that are very passionate about uh, serving the community uh, of elders, really, that... um, uh, has risen through the ranks and, you know, has, has really built the, the country we live in. And so uh, I think that we need to, as professionals, uh, work together with the people that are the policymakers, work together with the actual, you know, frontline staff, the owners of many of these homes. I mean, there's a plethora of information out there, but it's a question of people working together. The, the design of uh, senior living and long-term care work has never been, you know, a glamorous uh, type of design, but it's a very dedicated design. And uh, I think that um, there's knowledge out there. I mean, we've had, during this pandemic last year, we, we've had several forums with our colleagues, and we all say the same thing. Um, things need to change. Uh, we need to uh, be heard, and we know a lot of the answers, but we are we need to be heard in order to design for the future. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I was, money. sorry, I was going to ask you about that because that's another reason I found uh, your story so intriguing. Did you go knock on the door of long-term care and of uh, the health department of uh, Ontario and say, hey, I've got some ideas here because this is, I think, exactly what we need and is an example of some out-of-the-box uh, thinking. Uh, I mean, talking to an interior designer, somebody who knows space and how to utilize and use space. So why not bring in somebody such as yourself with your expertise that could really maybe uh, help in this situation? 
Well, many of many of the owners and many of the organizations do. I mean, they have professionals. I mean, it's not just about space planning. It's about knowing materials. It's about looking at, you know, designing for a 25-year building. A lot of the spaces, you know, that are out there right now, they're they're 25 years old. And so when you're designing, you're designing for a timeless environment. You're designing for something that resembles home, something that feels like home, but something that performs uh, for an acute care setting. And so it's just, it's, it's professional uh, at a high level. I mean, uh, you know, professional interior designers are accredited professionals who have education and we continue our education in the chosen field. So, uh, yeah, we need to be, um, we really need to be uh, asked and we will, we will uh, perform. Uh, I think that, again, it's, it's a question of collaboration with uh, architects, engineers, all of the other professionals. There's, there's usually when we're involved in these new builds, there is an umbrella of professionals and everybody is looking at it with um, a set of professional eyes. Yeah, just really, really uh, fascinating. Erica, really appreciate you joining us uh, this afternoon, lending uh, your perspective, and uh, we're going to continue to uh, follow this uh, with interest, obviously. Thank you so much again for today. Thanks for reaching out. No worries. Erica DeChalk is the founder of Design Farm, and as you heard, she believes, and some others, interior designers should be involved, and it's time for a complete rethink when it comes to uh, how we uh, design these long-term care homes, not only for today, but into the future. Okay, news today that the Red Cross has been deployed to a long-term care home in Barrie. And joining us now for more is Dr. Patricia Spindell, co-founder of Seniors for Social Action Ontario. She joins us here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Dr. Spindell, good afternoon. Welcome back to the program. Good afternoon. All right. Uh, Was it about time that the Red Cross was uh, called in, and should they be deployed in other areas than just Barrie, do you think? Well, I mean, that's that's an open question, isn't it, given that the homes are still going up the way they are. And I, I think it's wonderful that the Red Cross is going in and providing assistance. Um, here's what I worry about. We've got a for-profit dominated long-term care system, and it has to keep relying on publicly funded organizations like the Red Cross, like the hospitals, like public health to come in, and the military even, to come in and bail them out. So I guess the question becomes, why do we have a for-profit system if we're going to have public systems coming in and bailing them out all the time? Mm-hmm. Uh, why is it that it's been so long? We saw the military come in during the first wave uh, in the summer, and I know the premier was asked about this uh, last week. He said he was offered uh, by the prime minister uh, whatever assistance or help uh, needed, but it seems like there's a hesitancy uh, for that help to come to long-term care this time around. It, it is a really odd situation, and it makes me wonder who's advising the Premier, because I think we know that a lot of former staffers in this government have actually gone and become lobbyists for the long-term care system. So um, he's certainly not listening to the calls from the staff and the unions, because they've been asking for this kind of assistance for some time now, um, and certainly not from the public, because people have been demonstrating outside of these facilities begging for help and he hasn't been listening to them either. So it makes me wonder. I, I, it's an open question for me as well. All right. Your organization, Seniors for Social Action, undertook some research recently to kind of examine and explore more closely uh, what are the issues really plaguing long-term care. What have you found? 
Well, what we found is that there are a heck of a lot of related companies and there are a heck of a lot of uh, what looks like real estate investment trusts that have scooped up beds, but they're not managing their own uh, facilities. What they're doing is they're contracting them out to management companies. And, you know, that's that's a real concern because what that says to me is that there's more than one company taking profit out of these facilities. And certainly the ones that have had management companies have had some of the highest death rates in the province. Um, and it seems like the province is just addicted to building more institutions. And when you look at the co-pays that people are paying, they're paying between 1900 and 2700 um, a month just to live in these facilities. That money goes into the accommodations funding envelope. These These companies were supposed to have upgraded their facilities with all of that money. I mean, when you consider how much, you know, at, at even $2,280 a month, which is the copay for semi-private, um, a 200-bed facility gets over $5 million a year from residents. And it just seems strange to me. Does that mean they can't renovate, they can't rebuild, they can't put in air conditioning? They're coming back to the province, which then gives $1.75 billion more of taxpayers' money to them to upgrade their beds and to do all of this. It seems to me the residents have already paid for that. Okay, so what is the problem overall here, do you think? Is it these real estate investment trusts that own a lot of these for-profit long-term care homes, and as you mentioned, then contracting out the management of these facilities? Or is the problem with uh, government and oversights and not enough uh, inspection uh, being done? Well... To, to be perfectly frank, I can't see a whole lot of oversight. I mean, we, we have offshore money coming in, investing in Ontario's long-term care companies through organizations like Arch Capital, which has a partnership agreement with the Gulf Corporation, which is money from the Middle East being invested. And we don't know, um, with a lot of these limited partnerships and these then parent companies and then other companies, we don't know who is actually behind a lot of these companies, and we don't know in a lot of cases where the money is coming from. And Canada has a very bad reputation when it comes to this because it hasn't closed the loopholes where that kind of information is publicly available, where you should be able to find out who is actually buying up these these beds and who is actually investing this money. And you can't find out because we have these layers of companies and partnerships going on, and literally no public information about it. And then add to that a very weak inspection branch, which, you know, an, you know another uh, news report said 88% of facilities haven't been able to meet the requirements of the, nurse, of the Long-Term Care Homes Act. You know, add all of that together, and I think you've got a real debacle in the making, and I think that's exactly what we've seen. So what is your recommendations, your organization's recommendations coming out of this uh, research? Do we have to get uh, profit out of long-term care? Do profit and public health, public safety, do they just not mix? I I couldn't agree more. Public health and public safety don't mix with for-profit provision of care by large corporate chains. And I think there have been various reports that have already shown that. But we need to know, government needs to needs to make transparent who is actually acquiring beds in long-term care, what related companies are, are connected 
to the long-term care companies? Are they purchasing services and goods from these same companies that are subsidiaries of these or that are related to them in some way? I know that there's a memorandum that went out, and there are provisions in the Long-Term Care Homes Act that they're supposed to report if they're um, getting services from related companies. But it seems to me it's an honor system. It's not, it isn't as if they have forensic accountants that they can send out and say, okay, could you find out what's going on and sort of be proactive about this. They're, they're basically going on an honor system. So, you know, we don't know. We don't have financial information that's produced by these related companies. We don't have any public information that's readily available about whether long-term care companies are buying you know, goods and services from related companies at inflated prices. We don't know that. I mean, it could be, couldn't, maybe it's not, but we mm-hmm. don't know. Yeah, doctor just finally federal heard... Government, federal uh, government really needs to launch an investigation. Yeah, are you hopeful that is. there's real systemic change coming to long-term care out of this? Do I think that there is? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, if history if history repeats itself, then I think we have a problem. I have to hope that because of all of the people who've died tragically during this pandemic, that finally government is waking up to its responsibilities. And I sincerely hope that at least national standards will come in that will say that there needs to be an emphasis on community care and community residential and in-home support for people that's delivered by not-for-profits without that loophole that's there right now that allows hospitals, for example, to bypass that provision in the Canada Health Act by contracting out to for-profits. That loophole has got to be stopped. All right. We'll have to leave it there for now. Dr. Spindell, really appreciate the time as always. I'm sure we'll talk down the road. Great. Thank you so much. Be well. Dr. Patricia Spindell, co-founder of Seniors for Social Action Ontario. Okay, as we mentioned off the top of the show, there were dozens of warnings and some tickets and fines that were given out over the weekend to big box stores who were found to be in violation of COVID protocols. Dan Kelly is the head of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business and joins us now here on Global News Radio. Dan, good afternoon. Good afternoon. All right, I rarely do this, but uh, go ahead. The floor is yours. <laughs> You're ready for my rant. Uh, well, look, it is good news that the government's finally getting around to uh, to slapping some enforcement on big box stores uh, after they've spent months nailing down everything that moves in small and medium-sized businesses across across Ontario. Look, I, I still find it just outrageous that 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 every small business that doesn't sell groceries or pharmacy products is 100% shut down to in-store traffic. Last week, they now have banned a small business from passing a book to a customer outside their window after 8 o'clock p.m. The small business is now not able to deliver and drop something off on someone's doorstep after 8 o'clock p.m. And yet, thousands and thousands can line up across the city to go to big box stores at Walmart at 1030 at night it's uh, at Costco on the weekend, Amazon can deliver after 8 o'clock p.m. So why on earth we're putting in place policies that create so-called restrictions on the small and big, big, big gaps for the large is, is unbelievable. These, these enforcement measures are helpful, but gosh, I mean, months later, this is what we're doing? Come on. 
Well, you know, when I saw this story uh, breaking late yesterday afternoon, you immediately came to my mind. I thought of you, uh, Dan, because uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, yeah, it's nice that we've now got some enforcement when it comes to these safety protocols and these rules that are in place for public safety. But, you know, I thought back to our previous conversations over the last few months, particularly with small business being forced to a close. Uh, left with nothing but curbside pickup in a lot of cases. And really, when I think about the mom-and-pop shop and, uh, like, a shoe store, could they not operate just as safely, if not more safely, than a big box store? I mean, I have to imagine they'd be letting three or four people in. They could control masking and distancing a lot better than some of these big box retailers who, yes, they are clamping down on, but, uh, you know, why now? Why did it take so long? Well, you're 100% right. I mean, for goodness sakes, the average small business the owner or the employee that is there can see every single customer without obstruction uh, in in the vast majority of, of, of small and medium-sized uh, retail locations. Uh, it is crazy, but, but it's easy to hide in one of these big cavernous warehouse stores. I mean, it's impossible for the staff to maintain eyesight with every single, every single customer in there. So if they take off their mask or they're not physically distancing from the next guy. We've all been in grocery stores where somebody's going up the aisle the wrong way. And I feel for these big guys. They, they can't pot. I mean, we'd have to have thousands and thousands of COVID police uh, to ensure that, that all of the rules will be respected in these large firms. We're finally inspecting that. But the small business that, that we could, we've, we've said to government, let us see one customer, two customers, three customers at a time max, and we'll be able to eke out a living until the end of this. The business owner would have no problem seeing the customer uh, up front. They could even do this by appointment. But that's a no-go. Uh, but, but by closing these small guys, we're actually shifting more traffic to the large companies. And, of course, I'll add that there were 700 COVID cases in Walmart, uh, widely reported in the media, 400 cases in Amazon warehouses, but these are the places we're pushing more people while shutting down the small guys where the government even admitted there was virtually no COVID transmission uh, in evidence. Dan, have you heard from uh, your members? What are members of the Federation of Independent Business? Uh, what are they saying here uh, today and uh, this morning on the heels of this news from the weekend regarding the violations by big box stores when it comes to COVID protocols? Well, I tweeted out a video clip uh, on the weekend of the big lineups outside a Costco location, and I got a load of, a load of comments about that. But they are raising the unfairness about the, the unlevel playing field that exists between large and small companies. Um, there's some positive momentum, I will say. There are lots of good comments about the new Ontario Small Business Support Grant. That's been a helpful addition that we just launched. I think 10,000 businesses have applied for that a credit to the government for finally getting around to providing some direct support for small businesses. But for goodness sakes, businesses are desperate to replace subsidies with sales. We know this isn't business as usual. Small firms want to say if it's safe to buy something at a Walmart, then they should be able to buy it in a small firm with restrictions. If it's safe to buy the book on the big table with 200 other people breathing over your neck at Costco, it should, be a, it should be just as safe to go to the independent bookstore with a capacity limit and buy it there. That's what we're asking for. All right, Dan, really appreciate the time as always. Thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Any time at all. All right, Dan Kelly is the head of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business.